0: Hello, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast with Casey Jackson and John Gilbert. I'm your host, Danielle Canton. We love to talk about communication, we love to talk about solutions, and we love to talk about providing measurable results for individuals, organizations, and the communities they serve. Welcome to the communication solution that will change your world. Hi, and welcome to the Communication Solutions Podcast with Casey Jackson and John Gilbert. I'm your host, Danielle, and we actually want to take a look at motivational interviewing through through a lens of current events. So often as a newbie to motivational interviewing, I find myself applying it to everything in business, in mental health, in every area of life. And of course, what comes to mind is current events, things that are in the news, things that are top of mind, um, creating conversations out there in the world, and, and concern. So I recently heard um, in terms of a current event about um, someone reaching out to you, Casey, and you've been hired to consult with the hostage negotiation team and i was wondering if you'd be willing to dive in and talk a bit through talk a bit about the unfortunate murders in Idaho at the University of Idaho and what's happening there um and kind of talk to us about that situation through the lens of motivational interviewing well,
1: it's i mean it's just such a complex concept so yeah I think it's fairly fresh in my mind for multiple reasons. You know, I just start, was asked to join this monthly, you know, be consulting with a hostage negotiations team and a SWAT team on a monthly basis. So my brain has been very oriented to that as I immerse my myself in there further and further into that reality. And they bring me in to look at situations from a motivational perspective. So. Like for any of you that listened to the podcast, which I think was a phenomenal podcast, we ended up doing a two-parter with um, Lieutenant Lieutenant Steve Wall um, from the Spokane Police Department and I. There's so much substance there in that conversation that gives me so many thoughts when I when I look at the scenario of what happened at University of Idaho. And you know, I, I was talking about this and so many people were just saying that are are really immersed in that story and really following it, you know, day by day, following it, saying how they're going to have a really hard time finding a jury because anytime something hits national news, then opinions just start pouring out and it's really hard to find a jury in those situations. And when I'm looking from a motivational perspective, like just human brain perspective, you know, so my brain is so immersed in MI is so immersed in looking at human behavior. What, i always look at is is there ambivalence in the situation for people that are involved i think this is part of it as well too that there's a confirmation bias that john loves to talk about confirmation bias that when we hear about these horrific horrific situations that cause communities not just community in idaho not just in moscow idaho but all over the country people are locking their doors again and and have more fear when they're walking their dogs because of these incidences and so what you look at is the chronic stress that we're under normally that i i just keep thinking post-covid stress covid stress post-covid stress pandemic is our brains are just very taxed and as they're very taxed with stress we tend to get more reactive and less logical in the way we produce things we just get very we just get exhausted and the more exhausted we get the more primal we get so we just get angry really quick we get emotional really quick we get frustrated really quick and i think i have such an acknowledgement of my humanness around that but i think my fascination about where the human brain is about choices that it makes and behaviors that happen is equally as fascinating to me and i think that's the way that i've tracked aspects of um the the events in uh university of idaho and so just with the little pieces that have come out about, you know, the, um, about the individual who allegedly committed these murders, the thing I always think of is, does ambivalence exist within the brain? Did they feel two ways about the decisions as they were planning as they're moving through this? And I equate it to an extent with, the years that I worked in the prison system, you know, I, I was worked in state prison and federal prison doing substance use treatment, you know, chemical dependency work and mental health work with um, people who were incarcerated. And so I, I really started to learn the difference between the behavior and the intention behind the behavior. And for me, you know, kind of teeing this up, what I look at is the difference between people that have no remorse and have remorse. And I can tell you, having worked in state and federal prison, I would say over 80% of the people have remorse for their crime if you get past the defensiveness and getting past the defensiveness is what? That's one of the core constructs in motivational interviewing is how do you get past that resistance and that discord, the blaming outside the self, because everybody that gets in these complex situations, whether by you know what seems like choice uh, and it has definitely a level to do with choice or feels like it's more reactive, our knee-jerk reactions is to blame outside of ourselves. Where it gets a little spookier for me um, is when you talk to individuals that have zero remorse. And when there's zero remorse, that means there's zero ambivalence. And when there's zero ambivalence, it means motivation doesn't work. And when behavior change doesn't work, we always tell people, then you kind of revert back to a compliance-based model. So, it's the same thing that i look at because i think there's so there's not massive amounts of information out and i know there's new information kind of being released daily um about um kind of the investigation and what they know but when you're thinking about things that are premeditated it doesn't necessarily mean that ambivalence points didn't exist at points during the you know the planning process and so this was something that was not a reaction because there was a fight in a bar and somebody pulls a knife or a gun you know, this was something that was planned. There was a, a premeditation to how this unfolded, and I think what's so fascinating to me is looking at how the brain works through the ambivalence in ways that is it really aligning with its core values or is it not aligning with its core values? And for me, this is also you know having so many you know decades working in behavioral health and mental health is is there an absence of conscience? Which is where you get into sociopathy where people that are, you know, we see a psychopathic or sociopathic in old school terms, versus somebody that just doesn't have a social conscience, which is kind of the same construct within the person. They don't feel two ways about the decision. Um, their their way that they're looking at is how to not get caught, but it's more that the system is wrong and the individuals are wrong. And if you peel back all the layers, they genuinely don't feel like what they're doing is wrong. There are people that that's the way that they think but that's the way that their their brains operate from. I think that's an extremely slim slice of the population. I think of when you look at some of the mass shootings and when I've looked at some of the mindset behind people in the mass shootings, the irony is they actually have quite a bit of ambivalence. Um, They have a lot of righteousness. They have a lot of confirmation bias, um, but they believe they're doing the right thing based on their values but if you peeled back and held a mirror up to it you're going to get a lot of internal conflict you're going to get a lot of yeah but yeah but yeah but yeah but which means that ambivalence exists within the brain and this is really hard to talk about because we're talking about heinous crimes so it's not about justifying it's not about right or wrong from my perspective because i can get into all that stuff with my own biases but when I look through that motivational lens, what I'm looking at is when I look at the human brain, does ambivalence exist somewhere in the brain based on that behavior and based on that individual's values? So with the U of I thing, I think the thing, the preliminary information that, that gives you that unsettling feeling in your stomach is when something's so premeditated, if it was that premeditated and so calculated, how do they overcome those moments of ambivalence to make those decisions? This is what's interesting for me because one of the last um, situations I consulted on was with an individual woman who had a a knife to her own throat and didn't want people to come closer. And those are situations where I just feel like, oh, wow, this is why I want to help people get more skilled at motivational interviewing because ambivalence still exists within that brain. So for an individual who has a knife to their own throat or a gun to their own head or in their own mouth, I'm always thinking there is some modicum ambivalence that still exists because they're still alive at this moment in time so there has to be ambivalence somewhere in their brain um and then i think with the situation in idaho is you know with that with those murders is could there have been things that diverted the behavior or would have just stalled that behavior to another population at a different point in time from the same individual so it's more that the Interventions would have diverted the timing or the targets, but it wouldn't have diverted the behavior because the behavior is going to happen one way or the other. And I think those are the things that just again from a pure human brain understanding perspective that fascinate me the most. So I'll just stop here and just because these are these are all my kind of thought process when I'm looking at some of these really extremely emotional social complex issues and then trying to use any form of an MI filter to To overlay that.
0: And your effort when you're looking at that, Casey, is, and obviously the teams that are looking at it, is really to understand and in a way go back in time and say, for the benefit of the future and future individuals, is there something that motivational interviewing could have done to help um, create a different outcome?
1: Yes exactly and for me i mean part of the reason that you know it's so intriguing for me to be on the you know consulting with these teams is can we use communication more effectively to get to a better outcome can we can we be so focused and skilled in our communication that we can de-escalate situations more effectively than what traditionally has been used for hostage negotiations and and those types of trained approaches um and i think that's where i just you know, have such a a deep appreciation for law enforcement who try to to try to edge their way into evidence based practices because it is a complete cultural departure from the mindset and the skill set they've historically been trained in.
0: I think um, that th- those are some of the most memorable moments of training that I've been through, where you've actually shared um, footage, uh, police camera footage, um, of how officers implementing motivational interviewing. Are able to de-escalate. Are able to get. I believe it was a um, a suicide, a jumper off of the bridge. And yes. was it eight minutes?
1: Yeah, eight minutes.
0: Under eight minutes. It's just remarkable.
1: That's you know, and a lot of the you know, partially as people are trying to get more skilled, especially in law enforcement, as they you know, those that choose to get more skilled at this, it is such a departure, like I said, from what their normal skill set is, but you can see the ones that submit the audio the the body cam footage to me to get coded and coaching on as they get measurably skilled at it their interventions become so much more efficient and so much more effective in a shorter period of time in and the cultural shift i think that's so complex is so often what i hear from law enforcement is yeah this is a great skill we'll use it after we've diffused the situation so when they're in the back of our car that's when we'll use motivational interviewing and at first glance it makes sense why a brain would think that way but what i continue to try to to expand the thinking around is can you use your language to de-escalate a situation traditional and this was this triggers my writing reflex so i was asked to be on this one this subcommittee that was working on um looking at training around de-escalation techniques and it was mind-boggling to me on, as a as a social worker it was mind-boggling to me that the concept of de-escalation in law enforcement historically is, I'm gonna use a taser and not a gun. That's how I'm gonna de-escalate the situation. Um, And I think when you look from a civilian perspective, that's better, but that's not de-escalation. That's still use of force. That still seems violent. Um, And is there something you can do that's less use of force to do that? And I think from a public perspective, it's, well, de-escalation, when I was in this, (laughs) when this one officer was saying well yeah de-escalation is that we're not going to shoot him in the face with a gun we're going to shoot him with a taser instead um that's de-escalation i said oh that's not public perspective on de-escalation he goes well what do you think de-escalation is i said well my brain's pretty simple so i go straight to an elevator and i think to de-escalate is to bring from up to down um you know and to do that in a smooth transition to de-escalate that from being high charged to low charged situation not how do I use a different form of violence to get this situation resolved? That doesn't, from, I think from a public perspective, de-escalation is to bring it down, not to use a less aggressive means of force. But that's my bias as a biased civilian. There's other civilians that think shoot them, you know, depending on what the situation is. Um, So I think there is just different perspectives on different aspects of that. What I've been really leaning into in situations like this Again, based on what we know about data, is you can actually use your language to bring the situation down, and you may not need to use force um if you can use language to reduce that resistance and discord and explore the ambivalence efficiently and effectively. So some of those best videos we show in trainings that are law enforcement based in real time are the ones that the ones that are most effective. The longest one we have is eleven minutes. We've got two at eight and a half minutes, one at eleven minutes where it's de-escalated. And, and the, even the one that was 11 minutes long, that was just how long the interaction took. The de-escalation happened um, and the ambivalence was, you know, revealed or there he was able to explore the ambivalence within, you know, five to six minutes um, with a 14 year old, you know, female who was suicidal. So it just, it, what for me is is when you understand the evidence-based side of it and you understand the measurable technique behind it and the mindset behind it, and we can teach that and we can measure that and get feedback you're going to see better outcomes where it gets complex is when we don't know the whole situation. One of the things I remember with Steve wall. And so this is what I think of when I look at the, the university, the murders in university of Idaho is that I remember when, um, Lieutenant wall and I were talking about this, he was talking about his, the hardest part for him when he was heading, um, the SWAT team is there are people that wake up in the morning knowing they're having their last cup of coffee and their last cigarette as they're picking up the gun to head out of the house he said that's not a situation where you're going to be using motivational ring he said i can't imagine that the the outcome is predetermined in their brain and there's it's so locked in by the time they're had their last cigarette and last coffee and they're going out there with their gun he goes i just can't imagine how motivational would work in those situations that's not where my brain goes but short of that, when somebody has a gun in their mouth or a gun in somebody else's mouth and they're screaming and yelling, helping you know, law enforcement understand ambivalence exists in those situations. And we can use linguistics to potentially have a better outcome from that perspective. It, it ties into everything we talked about with the fixing reflex or the writing reflex is everything. I don't care if you're law enforcement, I don't care if you're you know why a public watching it happen, your writing reflexes. we just want this situation taken care of, we just want everybody safe, we want everybody secure. How, how do you argue how do you argue with that writing reflex it's hard to argue past that writing reflex of just get them off the bridge i don't care what it takes just get them off the bridge um and this is why we distinguish so much in our trainings the difference between compliance methods and behavior change methods so you can use compliance methods you can taste somebody and, and try to get them off the bridge you can taste somebody you can shoot somebody you can you can you know you can stop the situation that way and and i don't i don't argue against those ways what I try to introduce instead is, do you want to take a behavior change approach or a compliance approach? Those are just completely different mindsets and completely different skill sets. This is what I wrap it back around then to the, you know, in hindsight on the on the you know, the murders at University of Idaho, in terms of not knowing enough about the individual's mindset, other than even with deterrences along the way, it was something that he still executed, allegedly. Um, so those are the parts of it that is just fascinating to me in terms of does ambivalence exist within that brain? And how does that behavior align with their deeper values? Um, and so I think there's just so many theories out there right now about why he may have done it if he did it. Um, and I think that's what's going to be fascinating is more information is uncovered. My brain is always going to be looking at it from did ambivalence exist in his brain at any point in time? Um, where was that coming from? And what is he trying to generate? You know, and how does this align with who he perceives himself to be? So.
0: Is it, is it potentially another podcast to talk now about the families of the victims, the, in, in a lens of motivational interviewing is, as you look at the grief and the, just the horror of it all, like, is there anything listeners can walk away with that might help them from that perspective?
1: It's interesting because the first reaction I have when you say that is (laughs) when I'm so far in the law enforcement brain and in that level of empathy for that reality, um, and my brain so far there, it's almost like I have this, like, I start to feel emotional in working with the families. because, And that's, ironically, my, that would be my wheelhouse, is working with the families, because, you know, with, you know, just understanding the behavioral health and mental health side of things and emotional health so well. It is fascinating when you go to deep empathy on both sides of equations, how it pulls you into neutrality differently, which makes it almost feel different for people that you're not as sympathetic or compassionate when that's not what's going on necessarily. So what I do think is that when these tragedies occur, people are gonna go through a normal grieving process. Grieving has nothing to do with behavior change. So in some ways, am I motivational interviewing as a skill set? This is one of the times that, you know, you're going to keep your Swiss army knife in your pocket. Potentially, you can still be high in empathy and engagement, but the net effect is not to help them resolve ambivalence in that moment in time. That net effect in the moment is how do we help people grieve for horrific, significant loss of life? So, and if it was at a place where I want to work past this then I think that's where things like motivational can be extremely effective as well as other techniques um, as far as that are, that are therapeutic and healing techniques. My orientation of working with so many different theories and techniques is I just look at the efficacy of how can people resolve all the stress and trauma within themselves in a way that a year down the road, five years down the road, 10, 20 years down the road, they look back and they feel like it was healed in a healthy way that aligned with who they are. And that's, that's where my obsession leans into the motivation way of, of operating with people, um, but really distinguishing between, is this a behavior change based conversation or is this a different form of conversation? So the grieving piece of it, I think of just the nature of motivation with high empathy, accurate empathy can be effective, but MI as a technique is really designed more for behavior change and working through ambivalence.
2: There's so much that Casey, you're, you're bringing up from the, you know, perspective that Danielle just brought up of like what it would be like to go through losing someone that you're really close with in your life, a child, a partner from that. I mean, that's just so emotional. And so devastating. I could only Yeah. I mean, I could only imagine the level of, of devastation and then you on the flip side, think of the perspective of the officers that you've worked with significantly more than I have, but the little bit I've, I've got to, it's just to put yourself in an environment that's so, um, traditionally high stress and lots of constant extreme situations, and then a culture that's trying to cope with that through various kinds of humor or whatever it's going to be that tries to get through that and then the person on the other receiving is trying to cope through grief or something and it would just be so hard to have empathy for each other's perspective when there's so much emotion built up right i think there is something to be said about whoever is the paid professional in this case in this case it happens to be the the officers that there's something to be said for them being the more mindful people with how they're using their mi hence why they are hiring you to come on their team i do think danielle there are certain components in personal life to be mindful of like how much am i you know allowing my emotions to control me and how much am i being choice driven with this being what i really want and i could only imagine how difficult that would be if you lost someone But I do feel there is a place for potentially helping people with MI in their own personal development, like we'll talk about in a, in a upcoming podcast, but in relation to what happened, Casey, there's so much around the people that have been affected on one side and the other side. I'm wondering for you, like, when you're thinking about this perspective of MI, where's the, um. Where do you go with this from here? Is it to prevent future things? Um you know, how do we digest what has happened from multiple perspectives in a way that brings us, you know, more compassionately
1: towards pro-social behaviors and pro-social society? Yeah, I think there's multiple you know, I think what I where my mindset is going into is there's two things. There's what I was directly asked for, which is you know, can you consult on some of these to the point in this last meeting that we just had, that they're going to start to dial me in. Like they're going to hit a button I'll pick up my phone and I'm going to be listening to some of these hostage negotiation situations in real time. Um, and, 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 and like I've been extremely clear about what I can listen for is where's the empathy, where's the sustained talk, where's the potential for change talk, where are the deeper values to draw from and how might you frame it? Um, because I'm not an expert in hostage negotiations. I'm an expert in communication around behavior change or to assess where, where ambivalence resides. I think the secondary thing that I'm looking at is just such a hyper-awareness of how do you help people develop this skill set who are going through their own secondary trauma because of dealing with this every day. You know, I, I think of how many people are obsessed watching CSI and all the true crime, you know, it's just such a, it's just, pervasive people are just obsessed with watching those kind of things special victims unit and all these different shows out there they're just high adrenaline high pressure murders you know and and it stresses people out when they're watching them and sometimes they dwell on them at night and, and can't sleep after watching some of those episodes it is wildly different to hear the gunshot next to your head and watch somebody drop dead next to you especially if it's your partner or somebody in your community and you're cleaning up the body and trying to get things taken care of and get the paperwork done to do that chronically in real time is incomprehensible for most people. So, and in, in in having some awareness around trauma and stress, that's kind of my secondary of how do you help people learn something that will ultimately help on some levels with their skill set. But on the flip side, it's almost antithetical to what they're trained to do, which is to be emotionally detached because the amount of trauma that that you see and hear and witness on a day to day basis is. Um, the human body is not set up and the human brain is not set up to have that much over time without it doing damage. So there's just a lot of secondary trauma. So I think that the two things I think of, John, actually in my role, is what I'm hired for is to be able to listen to conversation and continue to coach um, these very skilled officers in to listen for language differently. And they're already seeing, even after the first few times, they're already starting to hear differently they're looking looking at situations differently and they realize their skill is not where they'd like it to be in relationship to motivational not into handling the situations um but then that secondary that what i always think of in teaching people motivational interviewing is that as a professional i hope the secondary benefit is they're going to feel healthier and happier as human beings in the way that they're handling some of these situations just like whether it's you know a cps worker or a mental health worker or a dietitian you know It's just like they just feel like I did my job with a level of skill that I'm increasing informed choice on the receiving end of this communication. And I think when you look from a law enforcement perspective, if when indicated, you can increase informed choice and keep resistance to a minimum and hopefully get to the best possible outcome that keeps that individual, the community, and the officer safe, I I think that's what people are looking for kind of a best case scenario. So I think this is, it's just a new horizon in. Uh, law enforcement with motivational. I, mean, I mean, I've been doing it for, you know, five or six years now, but it still is such a new construct in law enforcement. Um, to do it on this level in real time is just, it. I, it is cutting edge. I mean, it's just, it's not the norm by any stretch of the imagination. It's extremely rare, actually.
0: This has been part one of a two-part podcast. We hope you'll join us for the second portion. Thank you for listening to the Communication Solution Podcast with Casey Jackson and John Gilbert. As always, this podcast is about empowering you on your journey to change the world. So if you have questions, suggestions, or ideas, send them our way at casey at ifioc.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y at ifioc.com. For more information or to schedule a training, visit ifioc.com. Until our next communication solution podcast, keep changing the world.